0: This is the Purpose Church podcast where we exist to help every person live on purpose. It is our prayer that this message helps you experience God in a brand new way. If you're excited to be in church today, say, I'm excited. excited. Before we jump into week number four of our series, Road Trip, let's just take a minute and thank the worship team for blessing us today. They did such a good job. It was so good. I feel like they get gooder and gooder every week. I love it. Uh, So, Pastor Landon and Pastor Kelly, our senior pastors, are out this week. They're on a road trip of their own. They're taking their annual summer vacation, spending time with the kids, having a good time. They will be back next week. They send their love. So this week, you're stuck with me. I'm the next-gen pastor here at the Purpose Church. It's my honor to teach and lead some of the teams that influence the next generation, the kids team, the youth team. Those are the real rock stars right now, teaching your kiddos. So we honor them today as well. So this series that we're in... Road trip in is all about the Apostle Paul and the four missionary journeys that he took while he was spreading the gospel. We're calling them road trips. And these road trips, Paul went around planting churches and and writing letters that became part of our New Testament uh, and spreading the gospel to everyone, everywhere he went, and being an encouragement. And the idea with this series is that pastors have been wanting us to live missionally and and be outreach-focused in our neighborhoods, in our community, things like that. And so this is what Paul did. He was was outreach-focused because the hope of Jesus is the answer that the world needs. It's the hope that everybody is looking for. But what you have to understand about Paul's road trips is that they were difficult for him. He went through intense persecution and opposition everywhere he went. Eventually, on his final uh, road trip, which was really an imprisonment, he was beheaded for his faith. So these road trips were very hard. But Paul fought to spread the good news anyway against opposition because to Paul, it was worth the effort. I'm going to make a statement this morning. I believe Paul believed it. I believe it. I think that the gospel is the most important thing in the world. The gospel, which just means good news, the good news of Jesus is the most important thing because it's the answer to humanity's problem. Jesus is the hope of the world, that life could be better, that even there is something after Life that, that you don't have to just live broke down, busted and disgusted, and a beat up life. But you can be more than a conqueror through him who loves you while you're here. And then you can spend eternity with him there. That's good news. And that's what Paul started spreading. It was not just a religion to Paul. It was not just uh, something that he would do on Sundays. This was his life. And it was the most important thing to Paul the news about God loving the world so much that he sent Jesus to die in place of our sin so that there was no sin separating us from our creator, that good news mattered more than anything else in the world. And it mattered so much because Paul knew it's the answer that people needed. And without that, there is no hope. It says in Romans 1, Paul is speaking, he says, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel.'" For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul knew that the power for real salvation, salvation from a life of sin, salvation from a a destructive path, salvation towards a victorious life, comes in this good news of Jesus. This is what he dedicated his entire life to because it was worth it. So this morning, let's go back a little bit. Before Paul the Apostle was Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus. And he was a, a Jew who was very, very zealous for Judaism. He was very religious. He, was, he followed the law uh, to the letter. He was so zealous for Judaism that he was actually persecuting the Christian church back in that time because he's like, this is, a, this is the wrong thing. They, they can't be doing this. They can't be spreading this news about Jesus. That's blasphemy. And so he was going around, persecuting, and even participating in killing of Christians, imprisoning Christians. He was an enemy to the things of God. That's quite a dramatic changeover, but that's where Saul starts before he becomes Paul, and the craziest thing about this is that he really thinks he's doing the right thing, persecuting the church. He's dead wrong, but he thinks that he's doing God's will. He's like, I have to do this. I have to stop these Christians for God, which is pretty crazy. And then on this journey, he's, he's going to this, this city called Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, Paul has an encounter with Jesus that changes everything for him. It completely changes the trajectory of his life. He's going on this road, and he has some traveling friends with him. And, and suddenly a blinding light from heaven shines down. Boom! Knocks him off of his donkey. And he hits the ground, and he's blinded, literally blinded. And then a voice from heaven, it's Jesus, calls out to him and calls him by name and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul is taken back. He says, who, who are you, Lord? And I am Jesus. And, and so he, he discovers that Jesus isn't who he thought he was. This thing that he'd been persecuting might not be the enemy. And interestingly, Paul's not yet converted here. He just encounters Jesus and goes, holy moly, this is crazy, I'm doing something wrong. Jesus came down. I can't see. So Jesus tells him what to do. He says, go. He leaves him blind, interestingly. He says, go into the city you were going to go to. And in fact, go to one of the people who you were about to bind and take to prison. His name is Ananias. I've given him a vision. And he's going to tell you what you need to know about Jesus. And so the story goes that he, he goes into Damascus. He, he meets Ananias, which... Kudos to Ananias, by the way, because people knew of Paul. He was a persecutor of the church. They were all afraid of him. And Ananias is obedient to what the Lord says. He preaches the gospel to Paul. And Paul is saved. He's transformed by the knowledge that God loved the world so much that he came as a man that we would identify with him and died for his very creation so that they could be connected to their father. That's, that's the good news. And so Paul is transformed by the gospel gets baptized, and his life completely, not just changes, it literally reverses direction. And the church that he was persecuting, God calls him to build. And it's interesting to note that Paul was blind spiritually before, but it took a physical blinding for him to truly be able to see. I think sometimes the same thing can be true in our lives. We could be blind and not really know it, and sometimes it takes circumstances to change to truly see things clearly. So Paul, or Saul rather, becomes Paul after his conversion. He encounters Jesus, he gains true sight, and everything changes. So we're going to look at a passage today in Philippians chapter 3, kind of like the, uh, the key thought for this message. And it, and it depicts this transformative encounter that Paul had, going from what he used to be, which was really this, This leader in the Jewish church, this this man of status, he had accolades, he was recognized as like one of the best Pharisees, which was just like uh, basically like an expert in the law, if you will. And so he's recognized as this great man, but Paul goes from what he used to be and what he used to value to finding something of greater worth. So we're going to look at that today. It's in Philippians 3, 4 through 8. Paul's speaking Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks they have reason for confidence, I have more. And then he lists all the reasons he had all this status. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Their heritage was very important to them. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee or an expert. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. So he's saying, I had all the status. Verse 7 comes along. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I even I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. I want to talk about the surpassing worth today of knowing Christ. See, because to Paul, it wasn't just knowing of Jesus. Because you can know of Jesus without actually knowing Jesus personally. There's a difference between head knowledge and having a relationship with him. I just told you the gospel in in a couple of brief sentences when I first started. That's the good news, that Jesus saw that you and I were so jacked up, but he said, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to do something about it to bring humanity back to me. That's what's different from Christianity and every other religion. We're not trying to reach God. God came to us. That's the good news. But you can know of Jesus without knowing Jesus. Because Paul knew of Jesus, but he persecuted him. And until he had an encounter with him, That's when his life changed. That's the personal relationship. Paul was blind, even though he thought he originally was following God. And he was so utterly convinced that he was doing the right thing, passionate and zealous with his intensity of following that religious law. And and it was like a natural intensity that God designed him with. And it was just directed at the wrong thing. But God knew what was in him because he put it there, and when he redeemed it for the purposes of Christ, he turned around with that same passion and spread the kingdom message of the good news of Jesus. So whatever somebody has told you is wrong with you, maybe you're too intense. I personally am super intense. I'm sorry. Welcome to the Purpose Church. I'm going to be preaching today. It's going to be intense. But God can redeem those those character traits that he put in you and use them for his purposes, and then you're effective in his kingdom. So if you think, uh, I've, heard, I've heard people say to others, you're too emotional. God made you a feeler to pray for people and feel their needs and know how to pray for them and meet their spiritual needs. No matter what, no matter what it is, take anything that somebody has said is wrong with you. I promise you God has the ability to redeem it back to himself. Mm. Mm, mm. I'll, I'll preach myself happy on that one. So that's how God made him. And when we discover our purpose, what we were created for and get we have that encounter with Jesus, then it's al- aligned with what God designed us for and then we become effective. And then when, life isn't happening to us, but rather we're forging the path that God predetermined for us and he created us to fulfill a certain purpose. You matter, you're not defective and God wants to use you in this earth to do something meaningful and outside of yourself. I don't know if anybody ever told you that, but it's the truth. You and I were created to discover that in surrendering to Christ, there's something of far greater worth. A surpassing worth is what Paul called it. And when God defines you like that, it's not like he's redefining you. He's he's revealing the original definition of what it was intended to be. That's good news. So the the danger here, though, is that we could do the same thing that Paul did, if we're not careful, so whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, all people sometimes think that they're just completely right, and yet they're dead wrong. Maybe you've encountered some people like this. I think of politics, right? That other guy's always wrong. I'm always right, right? That's, that's the stance that people take about politics in our culture. Or I don't know if you've heard the phrase that's common in, in cultural speech today. I'm just living my truth. I'm just I'm gonna do me I'm gonna live my truth you do you you live your truth. There's only one truth. What we do with that truth and how we respond and what we think is the right answer to do with that truth may differ in opinion, but what is is there's only one reality. And so we've kind of mixed this up in our culture. I think you can even see the example in marriages, right? If anybody who's married in the room, if you've ever been in an argument with your spouse to find out if you're the husband, you're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. That's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. But there's some in, a, in an argument, somebody thinks they're right. And it can sometimes turn out, maybe you've experienced it, that you're sometimes wrong. And those are kind of innocent examples. But it could be even more dangerous because we could be striving in the wrong direction in life. Blind and unaware that we're blind. Jesus talked about this in the New Testament it was actually prophesied in the Old Testament that people would see his miracles and not even believe that he was Messiah, even though they saw it. And and he says this in Matthew 13. He said, this is why I speak to them in parables so that it's fulfilled. And then he quotes the Old Testament saying, though seeing they do not see, and though hearing they do not hear or understand. So you could have the truth right in front of you and you got blinders on and you just miss it. And that's how Paul was living his life back when he was Saul. So my question, and I think you should always ask questions when you read the Bible, don't leave your brain at home when you come to church. Come with questions. Every time you read something, why does it say that? What does that mean? You should be thinking through it. My question is how, this is what I asked myself when I read it, how do I avoid having blind eyes and deaf ears? How do I not miss the truth? Jesus said that he came to give sight to the blind. Now, this is obviously a literal meaning because he literally healed blind people. But it's also a symbolic meaning about restoring someone's spiritual purpose. I find this verse to be really interesting in Matthew 6.22. It's talking about our soul. It says, the lamp of the body is the eye. You may have heard it said, the eye is the window to the soul. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eye is diseased, your whole body will be all darkness. And this is true as far as like what we allow to go into our eyes, what we consume, what type of shows we watch, what type of things we listen to. Those things are important and we should guard it because the eyes are the window to the soul. There's a connection there. But it's a little deeper than that. Like my mom used to say, garbage in, garbage out. What you put in is what's going to come out. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that's important. But also sight here is symbolic of direction and purpose. Proverbs says, if, if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a pit. So this, this has to do with where you're going in life in addition to actual sight. That verse, if the eye is diseased, the whole body is darkness. A life without true sight or direction is actually a diseased path. And it, you may start out okay, but the end is darkness. And like the earthly disease of blindness, spiritual blindness can cripple your life and prevent you from seeing Jesus, your salvation, your hope, your source, the answer to every problem. And so this spiritual blindness becomes a very serious thing. And you and I need the type of sight that only Jesus can give, or our purpose is not revealed to us. And then our destiny is just to wander through life with life happening to us instead of walking on our destiny, like I said earlier. So the verse of the lamp of the body being the eye, in context, it's actually talking about greed. And what we see and and covet and the greed that we have goes into our heart and corrupts our soul. So when Jesus is talking about eyes and sight, this is all symbolic of healing your soul's ability to connect with God. So this is about more than physical blindness. It can be spiritual blindness. If you're following me, say, I'm ready. Okay. Okay. So I have this up on the screen for you. When your soul is able to see Jesus, his surpassing worth is revealed. And in him, you have all that you need. I believe that completely. And to prove it to you guys, and to honestly just make it tangible, because it's a cool thought, but unless you have some type of application in your life, it's not very helpful. So to make it tangible, I wanted to show you three stories in the Bible. Three stories where Jesus healed three blind men. They're three separate stories. And in each story, they were physically blind, yes, but there was also something blocking their soul's ability on a soul level to connect with Jesus. And I think uh, when you study the Bible, you should always come, this is just like a Bible study principle, you should always come with two objectives looking at a verse. What does this reveal about God and his character? And then what does this reveal about me? Because this is just Uh, the Bible is a couple of thousand years of a snapshot of a specific time period in Jewish history and it seems like it's just some random history and some poetry and some things, but every single story in there has been preserved over thousands of years and is still currently relevant and applicable in some way. It's timeless. And so when you read the scripture, you should be asking those two things. What is this saying about God and his character and what is this saying about me or humanity, if you will? And so What we're gonna do is find the call it a soul blinder in this scenario, because they're physically blind, but there's something keeping them from encountering Jesus. And then when we find that we can identify that maybe we have a similar soul blinder in our lives. And then the second thing we'll look at in each of those stories is how is Jesus the remedy to this soul blindness? We're gonna look for Jesus in the passage. If you're ready, say I'm ready. Ready. Sorry, I keep making you do that. I'm a I'm a kids church kind of guy, I, I require participation. So this is from, this first story is the blind man at Jericho, then we've got the blind man at Bethsaida, and then we've got the blind man at the pool of Siloam. So this first blind man is in Mark chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If you don't, you should download the YouVersion Bible app. It's a good Bible app. Keep the Bible with you everywhere you go. I have it on the screens for you as well. And they came to Jericho, and he, Jesus, was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great crowd. And Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So this man is blind, and he sees this, or rather hears this crowd coming by. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent That's the wrong kind of friends, you guys. If you have friends that are keeping you from going to Jesus, that's the wrong kind of people in your life. But he cried out all the more, saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. And calling him the Son of David was, uh, in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Messiah or the Savior would come from the lineage of King David. So this was basically saying, like, I know who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. So he's asking the Messiah to come have mercy on him. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, "Call him." It's interesting that Jesus didn't go to the man, but he stops, and calls the man to him. And they called the man and said to him, "Take heart, get up, He is calling you." And so the man's response, throwing off his coat or his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. I find that fascinating. This man is blind, and there's a very large crowd. Thousands often follow Jesus, hundreds at least. So Jesus stops in the middle of this throng of people and says, he hears somebody shouting above the noise of the crowd, which is pretty impressive. This man was desperate for an encounter with Jesus. And he says, he stops where he is, and he says, call him to me. Jesus very easily could have walked up to the man and healed him, but he doesn't. Very interesting. Then verse 51 says that Jesus said to the man, what do you want me to do for you? Also interesting. Jesus knew he was blind. He was asking for mercy, but Jesus stops and says, what do you want me to do for you? And the man says, rabbi or teacher or master, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith Has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Mm, That's a good story. Jesus heals this man. But I think in the story, there's a, in addition to his physical blindness, there's a soul blinder that's maybe keeping him from Jesus that Jesus is the remedy for. And I think you and I can identify it with it. So the soul blinder here, I would say, is lack. The man was a beggar. He had nothing. He spent his days blind, sitting on the corner of the street, begging for money and food. Because without the mercy of others, he was helpless. So it's not abnormal for him, for someone in a low place to ask for mercy. But then Jesus, Jesus tells him, come to me. Instead of going to him, we'll talk about that here in a second. And so in his lack, this man takes steps towards Jesus. And I think it's fair to say also a soul blinder of lack. This man lacked good friends because they all were trying to shut him up and not let him go to Jesus. So he has lots of lack. Physical lack, relational lack, maybe a spiritual lack. And I think you and I sometimes maybe we feel a a little more better off because we're blessed enough to live in America, but I think we lack strong relationships. We definitely probably lack good friends. We maybe lack Connection to God, maybe we wish we were more connected maybe we, we don 't we lack actually physically and financially we don't have enough and Jesus displays himself as the remedy for this man 's lack, and Jesus is the remedy in the form of faith and I and I that may sound strange to you because faith is normally attributed to being something that people have right and they, and it 's almost i 've heard it said, and I actually dislike. The phrase that faith is like the currency of heaven. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, like you come with your faith, and then the God slot machine in the sky gives you what you wanted because you put your faith coin in. That's not how it works. That's not in the Bible. Jesus, his nature is to create faith. Look what Jesus did. He created an opportunity for the man to have faith. He said, Come to me while you're blind on a difficult path through a large crowd of people, come to me, giving him the chance to respond. He could have said, I'm blind, I can't get to him, and stayed where he was, but he gave him the opportunity and the circumstance for faith to grow. He called the blind man to come to him, and the blind man petitioned him for what he was looking for, but Jesus created that choice for him. Let me show you in Scripture what I'm talking about. The Bible says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. So if he's the author, he pens it. He initiates it. He creates the scenario where faith is required, and we get a choice to respond to it. Then Jesus finished the man's faith when he came to him for healing, and he gave him the miracle that he was seeking, thus giving substance to his faith. Jesus authored and finished the faith. The remedy, faith, is part of who Jesus is. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He said the word, come to me. And I think he's saying the same thing to you and I today. Maybe Jesus is saying, come to me. And you, you don't have maybe have enough faith to take those steps. But I would challenge you that in the steps is where the faith is grown. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The Bible also says that the gift of faith is actually a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's, it's given to us by God. You couldn't generate it and fake it up if you wanted to. It has to come from God. Sometimes we, we have a, a blessing on the precipice waiting to be given to us, and we just never asked God for it. I wonder how many unanswered prayers are there because we just never asked God. God is willing and able to give to all liberally without reproach. That's wisdom in the Bible, but it, I think it applies to faith as well. So if faith is from God, and it's a gift of God, and it's the remedy for lack, it changes our perspective when we hear verses like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's that's depicting a life without lack, and that only comes from Jesus. So Jesus authored it, Jesus finished it. Faith is a remedy for lack because God is faithful, and what he says he will do, we can trust that he's going to do it. Here Jesus asks what the man wants him to do. So what do you want God to do? If we were to make this personal, what in your life do you need a miracle for? Because my God is still in the business of doing miracles. I can promise you that. What do you need? Do you need physical healing in your body like this man did? Do you need a miracle of physical healing? Do you need a miracle in your marriage to strengthen what is weak and deteriorating? Do you need a miracle over your kids who maybe have gone wayward or don't follow the Lord or you just don't know how to raise them that doesn't come with a manual when you have a baby in the hospital? I wish it did, it doesn't. Maybe your career or your finances or whatever it is, wherever you need a miracle, what what do you want me to do, Jesus is asking. Mm, That's a good story. So the next story, remember we're doing three stories. We're looking at these three blind men, how Jesus healed them, what their soul blinder was, how it applies to us, and then how Jesus is the remedy for that type of blindness. And the whole reason we're doing this is because it's one thing to say, go live on purpose. Something we say at the Purpose Church is that we live on purpose and go be missional in your community. But if you haven't encountered Jesus, you haven't gotten the right sight for why you were created and what God put in you to make a difference in the world, then how are you going to do anything? What do you have to offer the world without that encounter? So let's look at the next encounter. This one's in the blind man at, the, at Bethsaida. Excuse me. It's in Mark. And they came to Bethsaida, and some of the people brought to Jesus a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. So these are better friends than the first guy. These guys are, are not pushing him away. They're begging Jesus to help this man. This man isn't even seeking Jesus. His friends brought him. Those are the type of friends you want in your life. If, if this isn't a plug for small groups, I don't know what is. You need the people in your life who are going to go to Jesus on your behalf, even when you don't know that you need it. That's the type of real, genuine friendships that we need in our lives. So they were begging him to touch him, and he took the blind man by the hand, And led him out of the village. This is strange. So, first, the man doesn't ask to be healed, his friends do. Second, he doesn't heal him on the spot. He makes him take steps, very similar to the first man, building the faith maybe. I don't know, it doesn't say. I would venture to bet so. Takes him out of the village, and when he had spit in his eyes, (laughs) he laid his hands on him and asked, Do you see anything? So, this man didn't ask to come to Jesus. He didn't ask to be let out of the city, and he for sure probably didn't ask for spit to be spat into his eyes, though he's probably like, I'm blind. I guess it doesn't really matter that much. But there he is, and Jesus says, do you see anything? And the man, it says, he looked up, and maybe for the first time begins to see. He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So his vision is partially restored, just the shadows of people, almost like a tree trunk. He can't quite see fully, and then for the only time in recorded scripture, Jesus lays his hands again on a person to complete their healing, and he lays his hands on his eyes, and when his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home, saying, do not enter the village. Also strange circumstance. This is a very interesting story. If Jesus prayed twice for the same miracle. You cannot give up if you haven't yet seen the answer to what you are praying for. You need to keep praying for the thing that God has put in your heart. Whether it's a miracle, whether it's a breakthrough, whether it's for personal growth, whatever it is for someone else, keep praying. Keep laying your hands on the problem. Jesus said, speak to the mountain and it will be moved into the sea. Speak to whatever it is. He doesn't say, ask God kindly if God will remove the mountain. He says, speak to the mountain, and it shall be cast into the sea. That's how faith works. You keep going. You keep going in faith. Mm, I want meddle. Let's keep going. So Jesus heals this man, even though he was blind and wasn't even seeking help. And I think where this applies to us is sometimes we can be so blind and unaware of it that it takes others to help us see that we're blind. And so the soul blinder here, I would say, is ignorance. Ignorance, not even always your fault that you're ignorant. And we need the type of people around us. This is a this is a uh, it could be its own sermon on community, the type of people who will take us where we need to be and get us around Jesus so that we can get what we didn't even know that we needed. And Jesus is the remedy in this story through his character trait of persistence. That's what Jesus displays, the persistent nature of God. He spits in his eyes and touches him, and the man needed more from God, so he touches him again. So even when we're not seeking him out, Jesus is persistently working on us and pursuing us. It's not always comfortable. Maybe proverbial spit-in-the-eye type of a situation, but God is there. God is moving, and he is pursuing you, even if you don't know it. Or you, maybe he didn't understand what was happening when Jesus led him out of the city by the hand, but he took the steps. What are your steps? What is God leading you to grow your faith for the miracle? This is a slight speculation, but maybe the faith wasn't there yet until he led him. So Jesus is calling you to come, just like the first man, just like the second man. The persistence of Jesus is a remedy for our ignorance of our need for him. Sometimes we don't even know that we need him. And even when we don't realize that surrendering to his way of life is of a surpassing worth, he still comes. That is good. That is a good God. He comes anyways. God the creator comes to earth as a human so that we can identify with him and loves us out of our blindness, showing us a way of life that is more worth living. That is good news, if you ask me. That is the gospel. So that's the second man. His The first, the, the soul blinder was lack. Jesus remedied it with faith. The second story, the soul blinder was our ignorance, and Jesus's remedy is his character trait of persistent pursuit. The final story that we're looking at today, the third blind man, his soul blinder and how Jesus is a remedy, is the blind man at Siloam, the pool of Siloam. This is actually, to tell you the truth, all three of these stories are super weird, but this one is particularly weird. So Jesus, if you think the Bible is boring, you're not paying attention. It's super interesting. Jesus is going around spitting in people's eyes. He's about to do it again. Let's look at it. As he passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. This is John chapter 9. This man is distinctively noted as being blind from birth. So maybe the other men were blinded later on. It doesn't quite say. But this man, his entire life, all he's known is blindness. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. And that may seem like a weird question to you, but the disciples asking if it was because of sin is, it would have been common thought in the day, uh, in the time in ancient Israel. They believed in something called the retribution principle, which basically summed up is that righteous people prospered and wicked people suffered. So they see a man who's blind from birth. They're like, man, somebody screwed up. I don't know if it was him or his parents, but he got something that apparently he deserved. And Jesus is telling them, Later on, that's not how the world actually works. That's an incorrect perception. And if you've ever heard the story of Job in the Old Testament who suffered a lot of loss, and Job's wife said, why don't you just roll over, curse God, and die? Which sounds harsh, but really she just thought the same thing. Like, you must deserve this. I don't know what you did, but you probably did something wrong. And so Jesus flips the script and says, that's not how reality works. Verse 3 It was not that the man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So sometimes we don't see the purpose for our pain, but there is one. And there's a redemption that God does. God doesn't always cause any pain. I'm sorry, God never causes pain, but he can take pain and redeem a purpose out of it. So it says in verse 6, having said those things, he spits in the ground. Starts making mud or clay with his saliva. That's gross. And then he takes that clay. It's it's a weird story, y'all. I would be like, if I was a disciple, I'd be like, what is Jesus doing, man? This is the second time. This dude, maybe it's because the Jews, I don't know, this is speculation. The Jews were so concerned with purity and things being unclean. And Jesus says, out of me, what could be unclean, I'm using to make someone clean. Mm, I'll preach myself happy on that. So Jesus anoints the man's eyes, which means to completely cover with the clay and the mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus rubs spit mud in this man's eyes, sends him to a pool called scent. If that's not destiny. I don't know what is. And the man comes back seeing. Like Adam, who was formed from clay, Jesus now uses clay to form true sight in this man, telling him to wash in a pool, call that baptism symbolism, being baptized into new sight. And this changes everything. He was born blind. Never before had he seen. So I think the soul blinder in addition to the physical blindness, that maybe we identify with a soul blind or better, is circumstance. This man was born blind. This happened to him. He had no control over it. And sometimes the thing that's blinding us isn't even our fault. And yet it is very clearly keeping us away from seeing Jesus. These things happened to us. Maybe others wronged us. A past relationship, maybe a traumatic event, maybe your upbringing, maybe you had abusive or bad parents. Nothing will keep you from seeing your heavenly father correctly like a bad earthly father or a bad earthly parent. It will jade your perspective of a loving parent, and that is the analogy God uses to, to describe himself. So these things can be blinders, and we don't even know it. We didn't choose the up, the households that we were brought up in. Maybe, maybe it's betrayal, maybe a spouse cheated on you, maybe a friend betrayed you, something that, that has jaded your soul and kept you from being able to see God. Maybe a tragedy, a loss, a disaster, whatever it is, these things, these circumstances can blind our soul and keep us from being able to see Jesus in a transformative way that would change everything. So Jesus is the remedy to this type of soul blinder in his character trait of being a redeemer. It is redemption. By rubbing clay that would normally blind seeing eyes into the blind eyes the man is able to see. Like Paul, who was blind and didn't realize it, and the thing that blinded him helped him gain real sight, sometimes the loss or the situation that blindsides you may feel like a setback, but God uses that very thing that seems to set you back to bring true victory, true sight, and true purpose and direction back into your life. This is an important truth to understand that God does not promise a life that is free from suffering. That's nowhere in the Bible. Rather, his promise is that when suffering happens you can know with confidence that you are never alone. The Bible says he will never leave you nor forsake you. He was with you the whole time. He has never left your side. In this world, you will face many trials, Jesus said, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. God promises strength in our weakness to get through any trial that we face. And the promise of God is that no tear is ever wasted, not one, God can redeem any purpose, I'm sorry, any tragedy, and use it for your purpose. The very thing that should have destroyed you, he can use it to be part of your redemption story. I've experienced this personally in my life uh, when I first came to Christ, actually. Back in 2008, um, I was 14 years old. So if you do some math there, you can figure out how old I am. I'm a young buck. Don't tell anybody. So back in 2008, um, my family dynamics were Complicated. I was a teenager. My teenage brothers and I, we were kind of crazy, out of control. My, my mom and my stepdad, their marriage was on shaky grounds. It was a tumultuous time in our lives. And right in the middle of a messy circumstance, obviously a divorced home, struggling new marriage, struggling teenagers, my mom has a stroke, a hemorrhagic stroke in her brain. And if you know me, some of you have heard this story maybe. But my mom has a stroke. And she's bleeding into her brain And she's going to die. And the doctor said she's going to die tonight if we don't operate And, and cut a hole off the top of her skull and go in there and fix this bleeding vessel. She'll die. But they said the problem is if we do that and we go in there and we start messing with things, she'll become a vegetable. We'll scramble her brain too much. But she'll live. So that's your choice. Dead mom or vegetable mom. that's no choice at all. If you've ever been in a circumstance like that, you know. It's a horrible thing. And my mom's wishes, she wouldn't have wanted to live like that. And so I'm in a situation of no hope. And at the time, none of us in our family were really Christ followers. We were, we had, uh, you know, gone to church occasionally, but it was more of like a thing to do because it made you feel better about yourself, and it wasn't really, you know, a devotion to Christ at all. And to my stepdad's credit, he he turns to us as teenage boys and says, well, we should pray. Maybe we should pray. Because sometimes when you're all out of hope, there's only one hope left. And it shouldn't be the last resort. It's definitely not. But if you are at the end of your rope and it is a last resort, Jesus is there with you there too. So we, he said, oh, you know, either this whole God thing is real or it's not and we're wasting our time. So let's pray. So we laid hands on her and we prayed for her healing. I was honestly full of faith. I was encouraged. I was excited. I was like, man, maybe this is real. I don't know, maybe God will heal my mom. And so we sit there, we lay hands on her, just like Jesus did, just like the Bible tells us, lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. It's in the word of God, it's a promise. So we do it. We lay hands on her and pray for her, and then nothing happens. And I was devastated. And I'm like, man, I, I, and in the moment, I'm about to start spiraling, and my stepdad, to his credit, again, he's never really a God-honoring man prior to that time. He says, Maybe we should just wait and see. Maybe we should give it the night and see what happens. See if God won't come through. And so we did. And so my, my spiral away from faith st- pauses. And so we give it the night. And we had, she was comatose. She was out. She was, you know, if you've ever seen someone with a stroke, they've got the, the drooping side and she was unresponsive and unable to talk. And so we, we spent that night wondering, waiting, and God is my witness that About 5 o'clock in the morning, my mom wakes up from her comatose state, looks at my stepdad in the eye and says, I love you. She was miraculously healed in an instant. Not the very instant that I thought, but a few instances later, God came through and healed my mom. That's worthy of praise. And maybe you don't believe that that thing is possible, but I know what I know, and nothing could ever convince me otherwise. The doctors the next day scanned her head, and the artery that had ruptured in a hemorrhagic stroke had reanastomosed miraculously, and there was no hematoma in her brain any longer. And so maybe you don't believe that, and I don't fault you for it, because that's my experience. It's not everybody's experience. I know some people, and even later on, I've seen more miracles than that in my life. But sometimes I lay hands on the sick, and nothing happens right away. And I don't claim to know all of the plans and purposes of God. But I know he tells me to lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So what I see then in my experience is that when I pray for everybody, some people get healed. But if I pray for nobody, nobody gets healed. I'll take those odds any day, and I'll keep praying for people. So God is good. God is very much a miracle-working God. So, maybe you doubt this, and that's okay. I'm testifying that Jesus still heals today. And I had a, a, a chance to be a part of this ministry that took mission trips and helped a church in Africa. Uh, a few years back, my wife and I got to go. And there was testimony of a brother who had died and been raised back to life, just like stories in the Bible, just like my mom and and when they were telling the story, the person said, maybe you don't believe that, and that's okay. It won't happen for you. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense. That's okay. It's, this is a, a faith journey. Jesus is not telling you to believe for something that you would never be able to believe for. He's just saying, come. He's saying, take those first steps of believing in me and watch what I do for you. Mm. So, <clears throat> Paul, the apostle His transformative encounter with Jesus, those three blind men and their transformative encounter with Jesus, all these stories, and even my story, because after that point when my mom got healed, that marriage that was tumultuous, it got restored and strengthened. Those teenage boys started serving God. That's when I became a follower of Christ. That story that was de- degenerating and devolving and spiraling into destruction was redeemed. My, my, my mom and my stepdad are actually here today, and I honor them for being here. Um, they f- came from out of state to come see me preach today, so I love them so much. I'm so glad that they're here. <clears throat> but they are a— <laughs> if- it, maybe you've seen God work in this way. You see somebody who's so jacked up that you see them restored, and you're like, God has to be real. Like, after that one, <laughs> God's got to be real. I, I say that with the most respect because they are now the, one of the greatest examples of a loving marriage and people who serve God of any in my entire life. So God can do miraculous things. And so with Paul, with me, with these three blind men, these people are changed after encountering God. Utterly changed. It changes everything. And the invitation today, whether you're seeking Jesus or he's seeking you and you don't know it, the invitation is to come into a relationship with him. Coming into a relationship with Jesus. Our biggest need is actually a need for a relationship with Jesus. But it's hard because, honestly, how do you have a relationship with a God that you cannot see? If you've ever been around Christians, usually they talk about, this is not religion, this is not obligation, this is relationship. We don't just know Jesus, we know of Jesus, we know Jesus. But how do you have a relationship with a God that you cannot see? And I think we make this connection because, honestly, we see that most of our relationships in the world that we see, they they don't do well. Humans are not good at relationships. They usually mess it up. I think the divorce rate is 50%. Last I checked, so we usually fail at relationships. So you may think like with this relationship with Jesus, I'll come with uh, communication. I've heard that's important, so that's prayer. I'll pray a lot, or you may think that, you know, I've heard that you know pursuing each other is important to staying in a good relationship, like with a with a human partner. So I'll just pursue God and I'll read the Word every day. And I think you should do those things. But the problem is, the reason all those earthly relationships fail is for the same reason that that type of pursuit fails is because we're trying to do it in our own effort. And we forget that Jesus is the author and the finisher. God actually initiates this. God created us to be in relationship with him. In the garden, Adam and Eve were designed in perfect communion with God. And that's, that's God's intention and God's will. You and I were created Perfectly to be in relationship with God. It's not hard when you actually see Jesus. The design that humanity was literally created for was to be in communion with God. Adam and Eve, you and I, we were created in his image and made to live with him. But the problem is we reject God. Every single person rejects God. That's what the Bible says. There is none without sin, no, not one. Adam did it. We do it. We deliberately choose to do the wrong thing. And since Jesus died for our sins, us choosing the wrong thing is like us standing in that crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. God's response to this is a lavish display of love on the cross. That's his answer to us shouting, crucify him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us that's the good news. And some of us run from it anyway. But it's okay. We just learned God's nature is a pursuing nature. The story of the prodigal son in the Bible depicts a man who who rejects his father, takes his father's money, and goes away and wastes it. And then he comes back groveling with shame and guilt back to his father, saying, I'm not worthy to be a son. And the father ignores the shame, ignores the groveling, and accepts him as a son because he never stopped being his father's son. Even when he was off doing the wrong thing, think if you have children and you're a good-natured individual, there's nothing that they could do that would make you not love them. You want them not on a destructive path, but you don't not love them. You have always been your father's son or your father's daughter. That's the good news. And so Jesus responds to this, this like, betrayal and this, this, like, enemies of God, like, stance that we take. Like, we've drawn the battle lines. We've said that, like, we want our way over God's way. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. We're saying we think our way is better. And God says, instead of pouring my wrath on them, like justice would dictate, I will pour my wrath on my own son and then turn around and adopt all of them. That. Is radical love. That's why love conquers all. But it takes true surrender. It takes true surrender. And Jesus is giving you that choice today. He's calling you, asking you to come towards Him. Surrender means right where you are to change your mind and turn around because He's right there pursuing you anyway. That's why Paul is able to say, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, it is the power. salvation. That's how he was able to leave it all for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I'd like to pray for you guys today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Maybe you, you feel Jesus calling, and it's something the Holy Spirit is doing on the inside of you. It's a tug. And maybe you haven't had the faith in the past, and he's telling you, just take a step. I'm already all the way towards you. You don't have to walk far. If that's you today, I want to pray for you. There's no magic prayer that gets you salvation. There's no raising of your hand or coming to the front of the altar in some type of altar call. The only way to salvation, Jesus said it, is to believe in the Lord Christ and you shall be saved. Jesus said, anyone who believes in me will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Believe in the Lord Christ. So right now, right where you sit, choose in your heart right now. Do you believe? Do you believe in this Jesus? If you do, you're a child of God. I'd love to pray with you. Repeat after me so that no one in here prays alone. Say, Father God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for choosing me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I surrender to you now, Jesus. I make you the leader of my life. Thank you for your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Before we dismiss, I wanted to let you know that after the service today, we're going to have a time at the altar for prayer. We're gonna have our prayer partners up here uh, and I will be up here as well praying for people. If you need healing, my God still heals today. If you need restoration in a relationship, if you need strength to get through a trial, if you need anything, Jesus is asking you, what do you need? So we'll be up here to pray for you after service. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Church Podcast. If God uses message to impact your life, tell us your story by emailing mystory at thepurposechurch.com. Be sure to follow us on social media and check out our website at thepurposechurch.com to get connected and receive all the latest information.